Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, uh, we're going to be talking about the amazing wonders of our eyes because they say that uh, eyes are a window to the soul. And it really is true because as an extension of our brain, it's a way of peering into what's going on in a person in a very non-invasive way. And new techniques of scanning and, and using AI are revealing amazing secrets. Like we can diagnose things like Parkinson's or stroke or even um, neurological conditions by looking at someone's eye. Uh, we'll be finding out how in a few minutes' time. If you'd like to contact us on the show, by the way, if you want to comment on anything or tell a story, we'd love to hear them. You can email science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Fergus McAuliffe from iCrag. Ruth, our first story has to do with frozen corals. That's right. And look. Anyone that's a fan of science fiction will know what I'm talking about when I talk about cryopreservation because it is that idea that's in things like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Passengers that you can take something that's alive, you can freeze it very, very cold and keep it there in sort of suspended animation for a period of time and then you can sort of warm it up and, and life will, will continue. So it's this idea to adapt to long-term, uh, long space travel. It's not something that we can actually do with fully grown things. So we've managed to crack it in humans with embryos and we do that by... You can't put a person in You can't put a person in exactly. And that's because of water. And the problem is exactly like your pipes when they freeze, ice crystals cause problems for living things, they expand things, they break membranes and things. So, so that's why it doesn't work. And the way it works with human embryos when we freeze them to keep them for things like IVF is that we use a process called vitrification, which is like glass, making them into glass. And essentially, it just freezes them so quickly in special sort of dehydrating preservatives that you don't have that issue with ice. And and this is something that that, that idea has been taken up by researchers in Texas and Hawaii to see if they can use that to look at the big problem of the fact that we are losing corals all over the world. So we've already lost about half of all our coral reefs in the last 30 years. And with with the warming of the oceans, the prediction is we could lose up to 90% of them um, by 2050. So, So it's a big problem. And what scientists have done before is they've managed to take coral larvae, so like these tiny little larvae that develop into polyps, and they've managed to freeze those. But of course, as anyone who knows anything about coral knows, they only spawn and create these sex cells very infrequently. So there's coral spawnings that happen maybe a few times a year and it's very, very hard to get those cells and even harder to get them to to be viable once they've been frozen. Very difficult to harvest. Very difficult to harvest. So so what these researchers have done is said, well, what about fully grown corals? And they took a piece of a finger coral from Hawaii and they sliced it into very small slices about the size of your, your thumbnail and they were able to, first they actually had to bleach it because there's a whole lot of microbes that live around corals and they would impact on the process. And then they, they essentially... Would they not get frozen too? Well, they, they again, you've got a whole... That's like trying to freeze an ecosystem almost. And really, we, we haven't even cracked freezing a fully grown right. uh, organism. So they, they essentially did this very fast... They bleached it and then they put it into a little aluminium container that sort of stopped it expanding too much 
put special preservatives in it and froze it to minus 200 degrees centigrade. And they kept these little specimens of coral there for 24 hours. And then over a kind of another 24 hour period, they warmed them back up again. And what they found is the corals did come back to life and they started their normal kind of oxygen uh, absorption and, and, and metabolism began again. So, so this is the first time that's ever happened in a kind of mature coral. It, you said they were sliced into little pieces. They stuck back together. Like, so, what's that artist, David Hockney, is Hockney? it? Yeah, the way he sliced up the um, thing. Yeah, the, the body. The body sliced up in a little bit. Like, <laughs> yeah. when, when you slice up the, the coral, um, when you wanted to grow, do you stick all the pieces well, back together? Corals are, are actually colonies, so a bit like sponges, you know, they're made up. So, so within each of the little slices, there would be, each one is like a little colony. So the idea, and, and this didn't happen in this case, let's just be clear, is that each of these little slices could potentially be the source of a mature coral right. if it was allowed to grow. And in fact, they didn't do that well in the long term because, funnily enough, those little microbes which are so interesting, you know, because they're part of a functioning, healthy coral ecosystem. These little slices, after 24 hours in a normal seawater environment, microbes actually took over and destroyed them. Oh. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But, you know, with antibiotics or things, maybe if they were given a bit more time to grow without those microbes coming back, at least, um, it's, you know, we need radical ideas to save coral. So, so it's an interesting, an interesting experiment. Big time. And, and I, su- I suppose the, the clock is ticking in that, as we know, because of the amount of bleaching, we need to find a way of of uh, first gathering what we can, finding a way of preserving it, and then, I suppose, tackling the larger problem problem of bleaching, which is a, a, a significant challenge in itself, of course. Uh, our second story uh, has to do with um, bioswabbing. I've created this term. It's not a real term, but bioswabbing is what we're going to call it today. Yeah, let's run with it. This is, this is a fascinating um, story. So it's really about how we can use um, DNA to get a better sense of what's happening in our biodiversity, especially with the biodiversity crisis. So as we know, we are in the midst of a biodiversity crisis and key to managing any crisis is the information that you have to hand. Now, typically things like biodiversity audits, they are super time consuming because you're going out into an area using quadrats, a squirrel, exactly, (laughs) all that stuff, exactly. Um, and you're using line transects and even and that's for species that are easy to spot. If you yeah. think about the elusive species, you know, so things that you need to set like camera traps for, um, what you need for that really is researchers with a lot of time and a lot of patience because essentially you're trying to see the animal or plant or or evidence thereof. So so say for instance like paw prints or, or feces. Where this this new study out of the University of um of Copenhagen could make a potentially massive and game-changing difference. I don't want to understate this now, but this is this is this is really really exciting work. Is what they did is they um, when we think of DNA, you know, like we often think that it's safe and it's snug inside our cells, but that's not actually the case. As we move around, as 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 animals move around, um, we're constantly releasing DNA, and this is what's yeah. called environmental DNA. So things you know, um, hair, flakes of skin, etc. Um, and a lot of that is in the air. And for years, uh, scientists have sampled the air to see what environmental DNA is in it. But that in and of itself is time consuming. So they reasoned, is there another way to do this? So what they did is they went to uh, Kibale National Park in Uganda and they took just simple cotton swabs and they swabbed the surfaces of leaves. Huh. Okay, The same way that we were swabbing ourselves during COVID. And when they analysed the DNA that were found in those swabs, they, they were able to build up um, an incredible picture of the biodiversity of that area. So I think it was I think it was maybe 20 or 30 swabs out of those they found 26 birds, 
24 mammals, one amphibian and one fish. So that, that DNA, does it last a certain time? Because obviously you don't want DNA that's there from a thousand years ago or, or extinct species that just happens to be swirling around. Is there a life time on these this DNA? It's fa- it's it's fairly short lived. So it, oh, wow, it, it, great. It's, it, it basically um, kind of needs kind of moist surfaces essentially um, um, so it's really short lived so if you grab well, the, if you get these animals you have a really good idea that they, they were alive and in the area within uh, yeah like I don't want to put a time on it yeah, but yeah, certainly okay. you know it's it's. I mean like if you if you, if you, if you needed you know viable DNA for thousands of years ago that would need to be preserved in ice say but, but it like well, what this is going to do is this is going to um, improve I guess the quality of um, not even real time monitoring but certainly quite recent monitoring of the animals that are in that area. And it, it was able to detect everything from like tiny, uh, the Stella Woodmouse that weighs 20 grams all the way up to the Fortin African elephant. Is this because of um, recent um, sort of genotyping of all of these different species, Ruth? I think it's just cost. I mean, this kind of analysis would have been so costly 10, 15 years ago, whereas now it's just so cheap to sequence DNA that this is now actually viable. And we can look at complex mixtures. We can do we can do PCR again, back to COVID. We all remember making lots of copies of the DNA inside our mouths. We do exactly the same thing with eDNA. We have to PCR all those different fragments up and then sequence all of them. But that's now really routine science. But would we have the, the DNA of, of all of, 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 I mean, surely not every species, but would we have the DNA of most species to be able to identify, well, this is that particular Oh, I, I think, well, certainly, I mean, it's possible we mm. could find unknown species through this technique, which would also be really exciting if we find something that doesn't match in any of the data banks that we have. But even if it doesn't match, we'd probably be able to know what it's quite closely related to. So it would be a good starting point in a detection. Um, so, like, and one of the key things out of this is that because it's so simple to swab, is that you don't need scientists to do it. Anybody can do it. Okay. So in terms of actually building up a huge picture of, of the biodiversity that is out there, um, Anyone can get involved in this. Oh, that's very cool. Um, our third story, Ruth, has to do with an artificial intelligent nose. Yeah, a nose. I mean, I think when you're talking about smell, it's hard to get away from the fact that when you breathe in a smell, you are actually breathing little molecules of things into your nose and those are attaching to little receptors inside your nose, which are talking to your brain to create an odour in your brain and that feeling of smelling something. But it's been a really hard thing for for science to crack in general. I mean, if you think about sound, you know, we have all sorts of equipment that can listen to sounds and we can look at pitches and we can have a pretty good idea. A computer can sort of tell us what a sound is going to sound like. Likewise with colour, we've lots of different ways, cameras and and lights to look at colour. But we've never really had a way to sort of characterise smell uh, independently or without a human. Um, So this is work which is trying to do exactly that. And it's from a startup company called Osmo in Massachusetts in Cambridge. It's a spin out from Google Research. And what they did was they trained an AI. Now, what they were using was the chemical structures of molecules, odorants that would produce a smell if if you had them in your nose. And they trained it with 5,000 different molecules and they got it to sort of classify, it, they trained it to sort of classify those different molecules into different families of smell. So there was things, that, there was 55 different families of smell. There was sort of wow. like buttery, fruity, green, nutty, all those different kinds of smells. So the AI was trained on that. And then they um, they gave it a test. So essentially they that was sort of the training data. But then they went to nearly 400 different smells and they got human 
noses to smell them and characterise them. And then they got the AI to look at the chemical structure of those things and see how well it did in terms of classifying them. And in fact, it did pretty much as well as the human volunteered. Certainly on average, the average placement that a human put a smell. So if most of the humans said something was grassy, the AI also said it was grassy. So again, the humans didn't always agree on the classification yeah. of spell, as you can imagine. Green to you might be grassy to me or buttery to you might be nutty to me. So, um, you know, this was kind of providing an independent assessment. Uh, you know, the, I remember in the 60s, there was a lot of this talk about smell vision this idea yes. that you could have, <laughs> like, smell. this is one step closer, of course, because if you can identify a smell in a place, if you use a, 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 like some sort of sensor and, and the camera, and then you can synthesize that, then you could theoretically create, yeah. you could theoretically transport that smell to do another... Place. If you could produce yeah, any compound you yeah. wanted in some sort of magical mini factory there. But I mean, what, what was interesting was they then generated half a million hypothetical odorants and they got the AI to look at those and ah. see if they could classify them into what they were likely to smell, smell of. And, you know, of course, what's really fascinating here is if you're in the business of food, flavouring, perfumes, cleaning, and you're trying to come up with new and attractive smells that most people are going to like, this database now could be goldmine for you. Amazing, because some of those might be quite expensive to make um, or you, have, you need expensive ingredients. And um, and if you had a different molecule that made the same sort of smell, you could use that. Very cool. Um, our final story, uh, Fergus, uh, has to do with partners. Yes. So, you know the saying, opposites attract. So this has played out in popular culture for years and years. If we think of Jack and Rose and the Titanic or Baby and Johnny in Dirty Dancing uh, or even the Disney classic, Beauty and the Beast. It's all about opposites attract. But we have a new study out this week that shows that uh, it's wrong, essentially. Right? <laughs> so, And what's actually much closer to the truth is that Instagram page, Siblings Are Dating, which I don't know if any of you have seen that page, but essentially yeah. it's pictures of, um, of two people side by side and you have to guess, um, are they siblings or are they dating? Because they <laughs> look so similar. And now the science point um, to prove it. So um, what this particular study did is that it was it was um, a huge meta-analysis so like a study of studies essentially and it reviewed um, um, couples uh, so either co-parents engaged pairs married pairs or cohabiting pairs and uh, across a number of traits um, and it, and by combining lots of different studies together they were able to actually look back in time all the way to 1903 at these sort of personality trait slash couple studies and what they found is that couples are largely matched across a range of, um, of traits, including p- political views, religious views, um, levels of education, um, even things like if you're a heavy smoker, you know, you're much more likely to, to go out with a heavy smoker. Same for heavy drinkers, same for teetotalers. Um, but out of, out of all the possible traits, what do you think was the one that was most strongly correlated between partners out of all the possible things we could measure? Um... Something about morals or values. Yeah, oh yeah. It's 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 a good effort, but, food, <laughs> but, food, but it's wrong. Food. It's the year you were born. What? The year really? you were born. Exactly. That was the most strongly correlated thing, and that makes sense because you know it means then that you know you've lived through a lot of the same things. Same things, but also it also like your year of birth has a huge um, a dictating effect over who you hang around with in school, in college, etc. Mm. So, you know, like, and the people who you hang around with are, are largely the people that you end up um, forming attachments with. Um, I, I would say there's one um, uh, sort of question around the methodology here because who you're attracted with is not who you stay with. 
And uh, in relationships, after a while, you talk about things, you come to a, a meeting of minds over lots of different things. If you fundamentally disagree on something major, you, you often end up not staying with that person. So I, I think over time, all of those things will sort of mellow out and you, you will agree, you know, because you've talked about things and you come around to other people's ideas. But actually, who you're attracted to isn't always, it isn't always someone like you in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, when we say opposites attract, I think actually what they were looking here is at, at, at partnerships, yeah. say, as opposed to that instant mm. um, initial attraction. And I guess, what is the significance of all of this? Well, like a lot um, of studies in genetics, uh, you know, it assumes that mating is random, right? Um, but it's clearly not. It's much more assortative. So it's it's uh, when individuals with similar traits actually get together. So there's things happening in the background that we may not be aware of and, and that influences who we end up partnering with. Very interesting. Dr. Fergus McCullough from iCrack, Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thank you very much. Now, we think of our eyes as external organs, but anatomically, we can also consider them to be an extension of the brain. We'll explain that in a bit. But this feature of the eye is proving to be really useful when trying to understand what's going on, not just in our brains, but in our bodies too. Professor David Keegan, ophthalmologist from The Matter, joins me now. Uh, welcome to the programme, David. You know, we've been doing this programme for 12 years and we really haven't covered the eye in enough detail, I think. Uh, so let's start off in, in, uh, in the most basic of terms. What is the eye and what is it made of? Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the programme today, Jonathan. Well, the eye is a key structure and it's responsible for purveying one of our senses, sight. So everything about the eye is set up to perceive sight, vision and the world around us. And that's what that, it's important to sort of take that in context. So the development of the eye in evolutionary terms and embryological terms is all about setting it up to perceive our environment, the, the sighted environment around us. Obviously, we have our ears and other senses for um, to interact with the environment in, in a different way. So when the eye develops, it develops in a very particular way. It is part of the brain, but then it also needs to tap into other parts of our developmental structures, which we call the mesenchyme, which is sort of our, the, the, the shell of the eye and the blood vessels around the eye are that. But essentially, it's that attachment to the brain and the development of the brain and the eye are shared from very early in embryological development. And I think that's sort of a, a key point of what you're alluding to there, that link between the two. And the eye then, when it's fully formed, it really bends light waves to focus on the retina. And then the retina does some processing and transmit those. It converts the light wave into an electrical signal which is what our nervous system is. It's a high-speed network for conveying electrical signals. So it's converted from that light energy to an electrical signal, transmitted back to the brain. And as more processing goes on there, we might talk about that a little bit later on when it sort of goes wrong or the brain makes things up. But that's where it transmits back to the part of the brain called the occipital lobe. And that's where we perceive vision and we act on that. So just take me through, imagine I was... Um I had a needle and I was going straight through the center of the eye and all the way back. What are the, th I mean, obviously that's a very unpleasant yeah. thing to think about, but, but um, uh, what are the structures I go through um, on that journey? Uh, because when we look at the eye, it looks as if there is a hole. And, you know, if you look at close up um, images, it really looks like there's a, a precipice um, of, a, of a pit that's, that goes into the center of our eye. What are the structures that we come across as we travel through to the brain? 
Absolutely. Well, on the outside, we've got our lids that protect the eye, obviously, and we close them when we're, when we're asleep. As you go through, you've got that clear bit at the front called the cornea. And, that's, and then behind that, then you've got the coloured bit of the eye, which is the iris. And then in the centre of that, there's a gap in the iris. We call it the pupil, but it's essentially it's just a hole. But then as you go through that, then we're into the less obviously visible parts of the eye to the naked eye. And you traverse through the lens, which focuses light. Most of the focusing actually happens in the cornea, but that fine focusing, the fine tuning, is the lens, which is a dynamic structure, like a zoom oh. camera. And then you go past the lens, and then you go into what we call the vitreous cavity. That's just gel, but it gives the eye that structure, creates what's essential for vision. And then behind the vitreous is the retina. And the retina then is a multi-layered structure of blood vessels and neurons, which then, as I say, has a lot of processing within it, but it converts, as I say, that light signal to an electrical signal. Then, then you've got the optic nerve, which is like a cable, which takes all these sort of between one and two million little nerves gathered together in this optic nerve cable that transmits then out the back of the eye, back towards the brain. And there's an interesting bit about it, about the eye and the physics of the eye, is that it transverses back to a part of the, of the pathway called the chiasm, where we get intersection. And half the fibers traverse to the other side of the brain, and the other half stay on one side of the brain. So if we talk about, and then those fibers traverse back and they wrap around the outside of the brain called the optic nerve radiations, and then they gather up then at the back of the brain, which precedes vision called the occipital lobe at the back of the brain. So that's, that's sort of that journey that we would talk about. And the design then allows us to retain the laterality. You often, be, your listeners will be familiar with the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. The right side of the brain perceives our left visual field. So that's what, uh, and that whole Why structure is that? set up. But that, it just, it, it retains that consistency in biology. It's just that, that crossover and how, that, how our brains develop and it maintains that. So often people say if they've had a stroke, what we call a post-chiasmal lesion, which is a problem beyond that crossover point, and a stroke is the classic one, they lose part of their field. So they say, oh, my left vision's gone, but actually it's the left visual field. So they still see the right visual field, half the vision with the right eye and half the vision with the left eye is still intact, but it just retains that laterality. So it's a fun, and, fascinating design feature. And, and is that, um, does that mean that we perceive the world upside down and our brain writes it for us? You, exactly, exactly. That's how it transmits back. And then there's a, a reconversion that happens within the brain. When... Uh we look at the eye today, uh, we can uh, take very, very um, high quality photographs of it in 3D. New technologies such as OCT are allowing us to, to really see an amazing level of detail. Talk to me a little bit about what that does for um, retina surgeons like yourself, but also for, um, for understanding uh, what's going on in the brain and beyond. Yeah, we, we are at a real exciting time in ophthalmology. It's been building over the last 20 years, <clears throat> and a lot of that potential is being realized now. So talking first about just high-resolution color photographs of the back of the eye with the superimposition of technology such as artificial intelligence have really exploded this field, particularly in areas that I'm particularly interested in, like diabetic retinopathy or inherited retinal degeneration. You can learn a lot just from a photograph. So non-experts can have access to that sort of information. The technology you're alluding to about OCT imaging 
allows us to do this sort of cuts. We're all familiar from biology in school about sections and looking at bits of plants down microscopes and seeing cells. But so before OCT, to have it as an assessment of the retina, you would have to wait for post-mortem and do the same. But with <laughs> yeah, the OCT, you'd have to wait for the, for the person to die before you can have a look at their eyes. Yeah, and, and you can have a look at that cross and see what happen, is happening there. But with OCT imaging, you get an in vivo, a live cross-sectional image of the retina. And then with, with very powerful processing, they can convert that then into 3D images. And actually, there's a, a, a very fake now currently famous Irish ophthalmologist working in London called Pierce Keane, who really promotes this sort of 3D, this modern ocular exam that through imaging and application of adaptive optics, uh, sorry, artificial intelligence, that you can get a, a whole view and get it interpreted. But OCTs really hit the mainstream recently. There's been some high profile papers actually from Pierce and his group, but many others about prediction of things like Alzheimer's disease so going back to that link between the eye and the brain, that you can pick up imaging changes. So those nerves that I talk about, those one million nerve fibers that gather in the optic nerve, they're, they're one long fiber that extends right the way back to the brain. So if you've got changes in the brain, you get what we call anterograde changes, so upstream changes. So if something's going on in the brain, we can actually see it manifest inside the eye. Sometimes it's very subtle, we can't see with the naked eye, or we can't even see on those color photographs, but OCT imaging and artificial intelligence are picking those things up. The, the equivalent that we do, that we, we look at, and historically have looked at are gross changes. If we've got a problem with the optic nerve, if the optic nerve has had a stro stroke further back, or there's a tumor pressing on a part of that pathway I talked about, that nerve will start to look swollen at first, but then it starts to go white and pale. So that's a very crude example of that. But with OCT imaging, with artificial intelligence, is making that much more finessed. We're now being able to pick up changes in those fine fibers that go out the back of the eye. So there's no doubt imaging has transformed our field and opened it up to other areas and other diagnostics. So I can understand how major uh, insults to the brain might manifest in the eye as an extension of the brain, as you say, um, a, a different blood flow or, um, or or lower flow, that sort of uh, thing. You might be able to see it or, you know, higher pressure. I can understand how that might appear in the eye. But how, how would something like diabetes um show up in our eye and and yeah. i remember hearing a guy um alistair laidlaw uh, talking uh, about the eye and he said you know that uh, you could probably see any systemic disease through the eye D do you think that's true and, and and how do we spot things that haven't got to do with the brain uh, at all yeah that's a that's a really good point and i think alistair's largely right when he says something like that and i think that technology I was talking about those studies on alzheimer's disease have really brought that to the fore for a long time we know we were able to identify changes at the back of the eye that would indicate somebody has diabetes because it's quite specific changes so diabetes affects the eye in two ways the blood vessels that i talked about at the back of the eye and the retina they leak they shut down and they grow abnormal blood vessels. So there's multiple different mm. pathologies can go on. So we spot those patients and say, that's diabetic retinopathy. And we do that. Totally right, so you can see that really easily. We can see that easily. Then you've right. also got other in inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or sarcoidosis or lupus. And they go, oh, look, look at that. And then maybe do some special imaging like a fluorescein angiogram or that. And you'll spot changes that are characteristic. And you go, that looks like inflammatory disease. And then you'll go and, and look for those changes. Hmm. Um, 
things out of the genetic conditions, and I've talked about mitochondrial conditions. I go back to a patient I saw many years ago with a mitochondrial condition called Milas. So he had been investigated for strokes. He'd been investigated for gastrointestinal disease. He had multiple scopes. When I looked at the back of his eye, because he came into the diabetes program, he had this big patch of atrophy, which looked at age-related macular degeneration, but not quite. Atrophy is, a, atrophy is a dying of the cells. Dying of the cells, a wearing away at the back of the eye, which we often see in people with age-related macular degeneration. But put that with his diabetes and his other symptoms, we said, I think there's a mitochondrial problem here. So we sent off his bloods and his, his mitochondrial DNA. So the mitochondria are those power cells. And because the pigment epithelium, which is special layer cells in the eye, are so energy dependent, those mitochondria are quite stressed. So disease manifests there. And that was an indicator of the, his systemic problems. And once we got the diagnosis, we were able to manage him appropriately from there. So we stopped having his scopes. Then there's genetic, other genetic conditions, syndromes like Marfan syndrome, where they get wobbly eyes or they're at risk of heart problems, Usher syndrome, which I'm, I'm speaking at our conference tomorrow about blindness and, and deafness associated with that. So there's an awful lot that'll go on. But one intriguing story, I, I worked with a famous ophthalmologist in London, Peter Hamilton, many years ago. I used to do his fluorescein clinic and he'd have patients from all over the world. So a patient came to him who'd had a very unusual looking retina. The, the blood flow looked milky, didn't look red, it looked sort of milky. So we were doing these images. I said, that's really odd. So then we took a blood draw. He had an exceptionally high lipid count in his bloodstream and uh, he had to go sort of an emergency sort of statin treatment. But he then revealed that he'd been for a very long Indian meal immediately prior to coming. So here's a man who ingested a lot of fats, liquid fats, and then they manifest straight away in the blood vessels at the back of his eye, a thing called lipemia retinalis, which is basically fat in the blood vessels at the back of the eye. And just to give you a little idea of sort of, you can be betrayed by your eyes and um, any photographs that are taken of them. And and now we're down, there's a colleague of mine in the artificial intelligence. So, so just, just to be clear, um, you can tell whether or not someone's had uh, an Indian meal by looking at their eyes? Well, a high fat meal. You don't want to just right, sort of yeah, name yeah, it just yeah, the Indian exactly. meals, but because there's plenty <laughs> yeah, of others. I'm sure there's some other diets that would be indeed, similar. Yeah. We're taking it out then a little further. When you start looking at those images now and with AI, when they process them, they can nearly estimate a person's age from their retinal photograph. They know what sex the person is just from a retinal photograph, um, along with a whole host of other conditions, predict glaucoma risk. So we're, we're entering an exciting era, and it's no doubt it is, um, it is a window to much that's going on in the body. Um, I, I am obsessed with perception. So I wanted to uh, finish up asking about this because we talk a lot about um, how the brain constructs reality uh, and by all the different uh, information it gets through our eyes and ears and so on. And and what we get is a, a sort of an objective, uh, a subjective version of what's actually happening in the world because our brain needs to sort the information and give us um it in a way that we can make decisions more quickly. And that's evolved over time to be this really fantastic experience of reality, which isn't quite correct. And I'm wondering, can we trust what comes in through our eyes? Because obviously, I don't think it's fair to say we can trust what, what happens in our brains because it constructs this reality for us. And you can you can test that by, by doing visual illusions and so on. But um, the information that comes through our eyes, is that generally very... Um, very reliable or, or does, does processing or sorting happen at the eye level before it gets to the brain? It's reliable by consensus if we all agree in what we see but it all then depends on what we've been taught 
that actually is and what we've been said it is as we grow up and as we learn and experience it. You've touched on one of the most fascinating aspects about vision and really drops into that perception and philosophical view about vision. What What is that? Uh, as you're talking there, I'm thinking you've watched maybe too many Christopher Nolan movies, but they do <laughs> make you they do make you think what is real and what is not real. So there are two aspects to that. It is how the eye plays a role in that, but I think what probably was more important, Jonathan, is the brain's then perception. I talked about that processing. Processing happens at two levels. There's processing at that retinal level, an initial sort of quick sorting, and then it, the messages fired off down and into the brain. And there's more processing occurs there. And there's an element of, that's less well understood of interactions from other parts of the brain within that. How does a visual cue twin with an, a, with, uh, an auditory and olfactory cue, sort of s- a smell and hearing, uh, to create a memory or a feeling and, and all of that. That's, and that's what's part of living. And I've become quite involved in the whole perception of vision as we talk about diagnostics. And because we've got to step right back and not be obsessed with, say, in gene therapy, a particular area of interest of mine, we're starting gene therapy here, uh, replacing a gene and, and switching sight back on. We've also got to think about, well, What's that far? Because there might be something better to achieve that goal. So vision is one of the senses we use to interact with our environment, along with sense and touch, et cetera, et cetera. And that might be better achieved with other things like sort of auditory direction or um, uh, um, iPhones or sensory substitution. That's an area of interest for me. Sort of you receive one sense, but the brain can convert it into a visual or an auditory sense. And again, it's like that. It comes right back to that area of perception. We interviewed David Eagleman on the program a few years back, and uh, he, he really opened my eyes to this idea that that w- the eye is just taking in information, and it's actually the brain that turns it into perception. And he was suggesting that we we could take in different types of senses and turn them into something like vision um, that, that don't necessarily come through our eyes. It, it's a fascinating subject. I think we'll return to it because um, there's so much to talk about it. But uh, for now, Professor uh, David Keegan from The Matter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, John. It's time to look back at some of your comments from last week. And if you remember, we were speaking to Margaret Steele about... Um, obesity and whether or not we might see an end to it soon because of new um, drugs which are having an incredible effect. People um, taking these drugs and and within six months losing like 40% of their body fat, which is insane. Um, uh, And we were talking about how we perceive uh, being overweight. And one of the things that I'd asked Margaret was, you know, isn't just being overweight necessarily um, unhealthy? That seems to be how we have been... um, uh, had that condition described. And and Margaret said, N- not necessarily, or at least we don't know that for sure. Um, one person has texted in saying, don't lie to yourself, no one wants to be fat. Um, I guess that's probably true. In fairness, it probably is true. Um, another person says, really insightful discussion on weight, drugs, uh, diet, well done. I think, I, actually, just going back to that comment, no one, no one wants to be heavily overweight, I suppose. But at the same time, it would be nice to be uh, to be in a world where that wasn't something that was a a major issue for other people if it didn't affect them. You know, I mean, I'm very much a laissez-faire sort of person. Unless something is directly affecting me, you go live your life however you want to do it. Is how I want to live my life. We were talking about uh, Wegovy, uh, one of these drugs that it has uh, you know significant effects on this. Um, and someone says it'd be interesting to see what the effects of ultra-processed food are apart from weight gain in people who take Wegovy. Um, 
Look, there's no question that weight gain is part of the problem, but eating a lot of highly processed food, and I was reading an article this week, and I was like, oh, man, pretty much everything I eat is highly processed. And I consider my my diet to be quite healthy, but it, I think it was Van Tulligan, Chris Van Tulligan, I think he's written a book about highly processed foods, and there's like highly processed, processed, and, and, and not none. And the, the stuff that's in that last category are really, really, like, it's really, really very, very few foods, it seems to me. And everything else is in the other categories, which I eat a lot of. So like a yogurt, you know, fruit yogurt, that's highly processed. You know, white bread, that's highly processed. And even though I, I, I like to think I have a good diet, when you think about those things, it's just another thing, like just, there seems to be a lot. Isn't there a lot we have to think about? Um, anyway, uh, someone says, it'll be interesting to see what the effects of ultra-processed food are apart from weight gain. Yeah, I mean... Uh, like interestingly, this you know this idea that um, taking in sugar affects uh, children's behavior badly. There's no evidence to support that. Like so, so what are the effects of these foods if we take the weight gain out of ultra processed food? My feeling is probably not good stuff, but um, but it'd be interesting to find out. And another says fast food industry must love these meds. I hadn't thought about that, but actually, there's an up, you know there's certainly probably um, certain companies out there. You know the ones I'm talking about who are probably thinking. Happy days, you know, injunction in one hand, burger in the other hand. Uh, that's from Catherine. She goes on to say, I meant to add a plea for people who are listening if they're taking medication for something like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. It's really important to keep taking them, even if they are um, putting on weight as a result of them, because it can be serious long term to, to you know, to, to quit these meds. Obviously, Wegovy as um, an additional med might actually solve this problem. It's, it's, it's difficult to know. Important for you to have the, all these conversations with the doctor, but it's interesting to talk about. Uh, you know, there were a few drugs in the last 10 years that have been absolute game changers where you speak to an expert in the subject and they say, look, we, we sh- you know, we don't say this very often in academia. We say it all the time in the media, but in academia, we don't say it very often. But this is a game changer. These drugs are a game changer and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future as a result of, of them. That's it from us on this week's programme. Uh, thank you to our production team. Alex Rousseau was producing, researching Simon Keane and Steve Daunt, who got a silver on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.